The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Matthew 23 has some of Jesus' harshest language recorded anywhere. So Matthew 23, Jesus is saying some very direct things. Why is he saying such direct things? Let's remember where we are in the context historically. This is the Passion Week. Jesus on Sunday has come into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the Christ has come to Jerusalem. So what did Jerusalem do? Did they enthrone their king? Did they welcome him and give him the seat of authority? No, he came to the temple, which is his, and the Jewish religious leaders opposed him and said, by what authority do you think you're doing what you're doing? Jesus corrected them by sharing three parables. Those parables still have great implication for us today. The first was a parable about God's gracious, repeated invitations that are rejected. It's the parable of the wedding feast. Then he told a parable of actually the rejection and murder of God's son. It was the parable of the wicked tenants. But perhaps worst of all, Jesus first actually told a parable about two sons and one of whom says, yes, Father, I'll obey what you tell me to do. But then he never actually does. He gave lip service, but he never gave his life. And that parable best demonstrates those who want to be publicly seen as good people, thought of as respectable, thought of as religious, thought of as people that you should think highly of. But in reality, they just give lip service. They've never given their life. And that's who Jesus is confronting here. So these words, though they're harsh, they're accurate. And they must be said to those who are consistently resisting truth. They are shock treatment, which we sometimes need. And yet even the shock treatment comes from a loving God. Would you look at the end of Matthew 23 so you see where we're going? Please look all the way down to the end of your chapter, okay? Look down in verse 37 of Matthew 23. So you see Jesus' heart even towards such stubborn people. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So even though Jesus must be very harsh in Matthew 23, it breaks his heart because he did come to protect and gather those who are his, and yet they have refused him. Okay, at this point you're thinking, all right, Matthew 23 tells some things that happened 2,000 years ago. Why does that matter for me now? Yes, he is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, but all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable. So even if it's not written directly about us, it is written for us. So not only is he speaking to them, he's speaking through them to us. Because are not these patterns still repeated today? Doesn't God still graciously invite us to more closely draw to him, and yet people refuse that invitation? 
Don't people still reject Jesus as Lord and God, as I illustrated a few weeks ago? They're okay with Jesus as a feather, but not Jesus as a stone. And isn't it still a problem today to hide your disobedience through lip service rather than ever giving your life and saying, oh, Lord, I'm a good person, but in reality, you reject him repeatedly. Now, here's what God's word is supposed to do. Jeremiah 23, verse 9, God said, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks rocks to pieces? Or Hebrews 4, verse 12, that says, The word of God is living and active, sharp enough to divide and cut to the heart. So what is the word of God supposed to do every time you interact with it? Every time. It's supposed to shatter that rock wall of pride and cut down to your heart and tenderize you every single time. So let me just tell you candidly, Matthew 23 has been beating me up all week. (laughs) Because in it, it actually says they do not practice what they preach. And I said, oh, Lord, but I'm a preacher. (laughs) Help me practice. And it says in this actual passage, it says they want to be seen. And I said, Lord, there are times where I want to be seen. And it may not really be who I am. And in this passage, he'll say very direct, harsh things. So brothers and sisters, let God break that rock of pride and let him cut to your heart because that's good. That tenderness is what helps us be rescued from the callousness we so naturally have. So what do we need to do with Matthew 23? I'll suggest two things. The first thing we need to do is listen to Jesus. Perhaps this morning you're thinking, Pastor Josh, but I am tenderhearted. I am receptive. That's a great thing. You, You may be, but let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. David was once a man after God's own heart. And then he had a long stretch of callousness. And he needed shock treatment so that he could feel again. But also consider the possibility that you are hard-hearted and this text is about you. And so the paddles are charged, ready to give you life if you'll receive it. But not only should we listen to Jesus, we should lament with Jesus. At the end of this passage, he weeps over Jerusalem. Isn't it a horrible thing when God's king comes to God's place and God's people overlook him? But might that not happen again when he returns? So this passage is one that we all need. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to focus on just the seven woes. They begin in verse 13, and they go through verse 36. And if you're not scared yet, (laughs) I need to show you why we need to be especially careful. Because here are the words that are repeated. Will you follow with me quickly in an overview, and then we'll go more slowly. Look in verse 13. You're going to see this word six times. Look in verse 13. He calls the scribes and Pharisees, notice the word, hypocrites. Verse 15, hypocrites. Verse 23, hypocrites. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 28, full of hypocrisy. All right, here's what I'm going to call level one hypocrisy. Level one hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something you're not and you know it. But did you know there's such thing as level two hypocrisy? That's when you've deceived even yourself. 
All right, look in uh, verse 16. He calls them blind guides. Verse 17, blind fools. Verse 19, blind men. Verse 24, blind guides. Verse 26, blind Pharisee. They don't know they're hypocrites. All right, so level one, I'm pretending to be something I'm not. Level two, I've deceived even myself. Level three, not only have I deceived myself, I've deceived others. Verse 13, you neither enter yourselves nor those who would enter. Verse 15, you make a proselyte of yours twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Level one, hypocrisy. I know I'm something I'm not. Level two, I've deceived even myself. Level three, I've deceived myself and others. Imagine an actor who satirizes the president of the United States. And then imagine he carries out what sometimes is called method acting, where he plays the part all the time. And at some point, he starts to think, maybe I am the president of the United States. And then he even deceives the Secret Service, so they confuse the two. That's the level of hypocrisy we have here. To deceive yourself and others. Why do you need shock treatment? Why might we need shock treatment? Because you're blind to your own blindness. So our blind spots keep us from knowing our own hypocrisy. As if it's not bad enough that it's blind hypocrisy, it's of a religious tenor. So look in verse 15. They're trying to make proselytes. Or notice verse 23, they're tithing. This is very important for us to remember this morning. Did you know that you can be doing the right things, but for all the wrong reasons? So here are the Pharisees. Yes, they pray, they give. Jesus said that in Matthew 6 already. But they do so to be seen. They do so to be cherished. They do so to be applauded. So not only are they blind hypocrites, but they have dipped their hypocrisy in religious coding. All right, a second big thing I'd want to show you before we dive in together. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins? It begins with the Beatitudes, and all the Beatitudes begin with what word? Blessed. What do all these verses begin with in our pattern today? Woe. What happened? Jesus started his ministry in what Matthew's first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you if this is true. Blessed are you if this is true. And he's been rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. So now it's woe to you. This is the fifth and final discourse. And this is how the book reaches its terrible, horrible apex of sinfulness where Jesus is crucified. Blessed means how wonderful it is or how joyful it is. Woe means how terrible it is, what dread you should feel if this is true of you. The third thing I want you to notice is there's a pattern here. You know, you've been in church, many of you, you know seven's an important number. Think of Proverbs 6, which says in verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. When I first read that as a child, I thought, did God just get the, the number wrong first? <laughs> you know, I hate six things. No, wait, I hate seven. No, it's a Hebrew way of saying um, that seventh one, it's the worst one. And in today's passage, that seventh thing, it's the climax. 
So the first six are three couplets of two. There's a pair of two, and then a pair of two, and then a pair of two. One and two go together. Three and four go together. Five and six go together. But then seven is the climax. Now you're ready because you know how it all works. So let's begin with verse 13, and we'll go through the woes in order. This is the first woe. Woe to those who should be opening the door of the kingdom when they're instead shutting the door on even themselves. Look in God's word in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Here's how bad the Pharisees are. Their approach to God is so bad that if you follow them, you'll never approach God. Their posture towards the things of God is so perverted that if you become like them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, and neither will they. So what is it about them that's so bad that we need to avoid? Our brother read it earlier. Just look back at the end of verse 3. What kind of religion do they have that is actually death? They preach, but they do not practice. They speak, but it doesn't change their heart. Notice verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, which we know from the rest of the book means they add their own traditions and demand them as if they're truth. When the verse says they won't lift a finger, it doesn't mean they don't do it. He already said that in verse 3. It means they make life burdensome for you, but they don't care. They're not going to help you. Verse 5, they do, and this is very important, this is the heart of why they live the way they live. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Here's how bad their posture towards God is. Jesus says, woe, you hypocrites. Listen, this morning we all need this shock treatment. Woe, if I am more likely to keep people away from God than to bring them close to God. Woe on us if people who spend time with us are actually pushed further away from God than drawn closer to God because in reality we don't practice what we preach. And in reality, we do what we do to be seen by others. And in reality, we just have pretense, not truth. Now the second woe, verse 15. Woe to those who make those they influence twice as bad off as they were themselves. Verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You might not think of Pharisees as people who proselytize, but they did, especially in the first century, want to add to their numbers. But notice those who are added to their numbers are the worst for it. When you have succeeded, verse 15 continues, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Again, if you think Jesus never offended people. (laughs) This verse is so clear. This shock treatment is so necessary. Woe, how terrible it is, what judgment we have reaped if those who are most impacted by us are worse off for it. So these first two woes, Focus on our influence on others. So here's the shock treatment heart question we have to ask ourselves. Those who know me best, those who have an intimate relationship with me and are impacted and influenced by me, are they closer to God because of them? Or am I shutting the door in their face? Woe to us. Woe to them. 
if the door is being shut because of who we really are. Now, number three, woe to those who misuse Scripture to warrant sin. Verse 16 through 22 is complex. Let me read it and then explain it. Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? All right, let me pause to explain a little bit of what's going on historically. In the Bible, as Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, your yes should simply be yes, and your no should simply be no. But what the Pharisees did was made up a bunch of technicalities. So if you say, oh, you know, I swear by the temple that I'll do what you asked me to do. Uh, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, so I don't have to do what I promised, you see. So now verse 18, you also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. Up, oh, swore by the altar that I would... Keep that business agreement, but ha-ha, I didn't swear by the gift on the altar. Verse 19, you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Verse 20, therefore anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Verse 21, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. So notice Jesus' point is, look, if you swear by anything, then verse 22 is true. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne, by the one who sits on it. So anything you promise you should do, anything you say is true, should be true because you should live in sight of God. So how terrible it is. Woe on us. How dreadful it is if we attempt to assuage our guilty conscience and justify our unethical practices by elaborate technicalities that replace simple integrity. Let me try to illustrate how we do this today. First, we'll start with the juvenile children level. If uh, your children say, hey, I'll, I'll clean my room, and you find out later they didn't clean their room, and then they say, well, my fingers were crossed. <laughs> they had the technicality. Now, adults, we're much more sophisticated sinners, so the way we ruin people's lives is through very well-written legal documents and user agreements. Every time I hit accept on my phone, I wonder who's, so, where my soul has been sold. <laughs> who knows what's in all that technical jargon? But the person who wrote it knows that they can manipulate things with technicalities rather than have real integrity. This week, uh, because of the lightning storm, we lost internet at the church, and some Monday through Friday, the phones were down, the internet were down, and the man from Time Warner Spectrum came here, and uh, he was working on it, and I just tried talking to him and seeing if the conversation could move in a good way, and, and it did. He's, he's a believer and a really good guy, and he told me something that he's observed with Spectrum that has really weighed heavily on him. He said often he'll be a follow-up call on someone who's elderly, and he'll get to the house, and he'll be disappointed to find this, that the preceding technician came to help a widow who lives by herself in her house, and all she needed was the remote fixed. But by the time he left, she was paying $500 a month for a box in every room and all these features that she would never even know how to use. See, that's the point Jesus is making. Woe to us if through elaborate technicalities, what we did was technically legal, but it actually lacked all integrity. Jesus is saying, woe, if we abuse and manipulate the rules for our own sinful advantage. And what makes what the Pharisees is doing even worse is they're using Scripture to justify these things. So now verse 23 and 24 
Woe number four, woe to those who scrupulously adhere to the minors while missing the thrust of God's word. Verse 23, look. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So you should give your tithe. That's right. But you shouldn't have done so to the neglect of the more important thrust of the law. Verse 24, you blind guides. I love when Jesus uses punchy metaphors. This is a great one. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. In the first century, they didn't have water filters like you and I do. If you have a Keurig coffee machine, it has a filter in the back. You might have a filter on your refrigerator. Your water's been filtered by everything by the time you drink it. But in the first century, they would use a white cloth and they would put their cup here and put the cloth on top and then pour the filter through it. And hey, if it made it through the cloth, then they figure it's good enough, right? So Jesus' point is you take time to do that when you're getting ready to drink, but it's actually as if you've swallowed a full camel, It's laughably ridiculous how upside down you are in terms of what you focus on. You've missed justice. You've missed mercy. You've missed faithfulness. You read the Bible and you missed God. You just followed some commands. Jesus has said this repeatedly already in his ministry. He's quoted Hosea 6 verse 6 twice in Matthew, which says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, of course, God did require sacrifice and burnt offerings, but he means in comparison, you've missed everything. So what do the third and fourth woes show us? Because they are couplets, so what does this couplet show us? It shows us there's a vast difference between mere biblical knowledge and religious ritual and true integrity that knows God's heart. There's a vast difference between those. So woe on us. If we give God superficial obedience, but we don't even know his heart. This passage causes us to have to have a shock treatment of examination. Woe on us if while we're carrying out good actions, we have anger in our heart towards others. Now the fifth woe. Woe to those who care to clean their outside but overlook their inside. In verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish. The inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleaned the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. I do think it's helpful to use the word religion to describe secular man-made attempts to live well. Did you know the reason religion doesn't work? Because you can't transform from the outside in, but only from the inside out. You can do anything you want to make the outside look better. It will change nothing. Here's my favorite thing Jesus does in this particular section. He says, if you clean the inside of the cup, then the outside also will be clean. Now, I'll be honest, in our house, Stephanie does way more of the dishes than I do. So on those occasions where I think I'm really going to help out, I at least know this much, you have to clean both the inside and the outside. (laughs) Like if you clean the inside, it doesn't make the outside clean. That's not how dishes work. I'm not great at it, but I'm pretty sure 
It doesn't work that way. So why would Jesus say it this way? To shock the way you think. To realize if you will simply trust God and let God clean the outside, or sorry, let God clean the inside, the outside will follow supernaturally. That's an amazing promise. Dishes don't clean that way, but you will change that way. If you let God change the inside, he will change the outside. Now, he gives two examples of things that are inside that other people may not see that you think you can get away with. Here's what they are. Look in verse 25. He says on the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed is a very strong Greek word here. A good English translation would be rapaciousness, an an insatiable desire for more. This belief that I've been left out, I've been robbed, I've been cheated, I didn't get enough. And the second word, self-indulgence, just simply means selfishness. So on the outside, you've tried to make it look like you're a good person. On the inside, you're constantly dissatisfied and self-absorbed. Um, do you remember something from the Beatitudes? Do you remember how some of them began with, blessed are the poor in spirit because yours is right now the kingdom of heaven, and yet some of the other ones said yours will be? The woes here on the flip side of Matthew work exactly the same way. The judgment of the woes occurs in part now and in full then. Let me illustrate that. So if you focus on cleaning the outside but you overlook the inside, what will be the judgment now? Well, first of all, we all fool a lot less people than we think we do. But second of all, what good is it if your outside sparkles and your inside is miserable? You're consistently dissatisfied, you're self-absorbed, you're never happy, but the outside looks okay. Woe on us if that's who we are. Now, number six, Again, very similar to five because they are couplets. Woe to those cleaning the outside for people's approval. Verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus is using a visual that they would have gotten even more out of than we do because if you lived in Israel, once a year you had to come to Jerusalem for Passover. And when you came to Jerusalem for Passover, you were not supposed to touch a corpse or that would make you ceremonially unclean. Now remember, this is before the Industrial Revolution and before the light bulb. And so to keep you from touching corpses, what people would do, would they would clean the tombs and the tombstones so that they would sparkle off the moonlight, so that you could make it into the city without touching something unclean. So everybody listening to Jesus would immediately picture, oh, I know what he's talking about, because once a year they really clean these things. But on the inside, everything is disgusting. So notice verse 28. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe if we have a pressure-washed public image and a hideous inner life. What judgment it is if the impression we have on others is more important to us than the heart that God knows. This shock treatment requires all of us to consider ourselves because here's something all of us do as humans, all of us. 
We all have what I've heard called a representative self. Every one of us. We have a representative self. It's a version of ourself that we present to the public court of opinion. It's the version of ourself that we've carefully crafted so that we'll be seen a certain way by other people. Now, if we're not careful over time, we'll start to think that our representative self is our real self. That's why it's a grace when someone who lives with you says, hey, what's wrong with you? Because <laughs> they know your real self. But if over time the representative self gains hold, then you'll start to think, yeah, that's really who I am. See, the Pharisees in public were thought highly of. They had moral standards. They had ethical beauty. And so they started to think, that's who I really am. So Jesus, in gracious shock treatment, is telling them, no, actually, you're more like a tomb. So how can you and I know if we've become blind to our true self and become trusting in our representative self? I think a couple things will help us. One is, are you merciless inwardly towards others? and confident that you are doing everything right. You're merciless inwardly towards others while confident that you are doing everything right. That's a pretty good sign that you've confused the two. And what impact do we have on those we know best? So the fifth and sixth woe are the gap between the outer self and the inner self. Now, this is all building to a climax, and here it is, the seventh woe, verses 29 through 32. Woe if you think you've corrected your ancestors' failures when you failed worse. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, hey, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Verse 31, so you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. What is Jesus saying? Go ahead and murder whom? Murder him. Your ancestors murdered the prophets while you build statues to them thinking, I would never do that. And now here you are plotting to kill Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Here's what I think is so striking about this passage, given our moment right now. Their thinking is this. Hey, we're on the right side of history. Our ancestors did some stuff wrong. You know, our parents did some stuff that was messed up in the past. But we've evolved morally, and we're on the right side now. Haven't you heard that argument? (laughs) We're on the right side of history. Yeah, you know, the people behind us, they really messed up. But we've cleaned it all up now. Ironically, you've plummeted lower than any of your ancestors because you're committing the ultimate, most cosmic sin. You're rejecting Jesus as Lord and God. See, they think they're on the right side of history. They're on the wrong side of the Savior. So now the sentence comes in verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Jesus is much more willing to talk about hell than most of us are because he's much more loving than we are. So he tells people the actual reality that comes if you reject him. If you reject Jesus, you are eternally separated from him. Notice he still holds out hope, though, that they could escape that. 
So verse 34, therefore I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. The first person murdered in the Bible is Abel, Genesis 4. And in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible ends with 2 Chronicles. So the last person murdered is Zechariah. And hey, it works out coincidentally in English that for us, that's A to Z. (laughs) So everybody who's opposed God's messengers is now being fulfilled by climax in this generation. So look in verse 36. Truly I tell you, all this will come to this generation. In other words... In your blindness, you think you're on the right side of history. In reality, you're about to make the most cosmic error of history. You're going to murder the ultimate prophet, the Alpha and Omega, Jesus himself. And yet our Lord is so good, there is a solution. So verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you? See your house, verse 38, is left desolate, verse 39. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That verse was the most confusing to me in the whole chapter. When will they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? That's what they said in the beginning of chapter 21 and 22. Hosanna in the highest, Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when will the Pharisees say that? When will the Jewish religious leaders say that? And the answer we know from Philippians 2 is everybody will either say it on earth or say it when the king returns. You see, the lamb will come back as a lion and then everyone will confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus is so good that though he will come back as a lion, he first gives his life as a lamb. And so chapter 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple that will come. And surely that did happen in AD 70. But first, he will willingly give up the temple of his body to be torn and broken. It's amazing that the lion who could point out hypocrisy first came as the lamb. And that means, though this is a hard chapter that we have to be honest, probably touches on us. There's very, very good news. And here's the good news. God the Son, Jesus, was exposed on the cross to save sinners like us. He died in humiliation for people like us who crave approval. He died and the world was covered with darkness so that he could bear our darkness and bring us into the light. See, the good news is though Jesus must point out their duplicity, he, God and man, will bear all our sin in his body and forgive it all if we simply acknowledge our need and call out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Isn't it amazing that the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit? What does it take to be rescued from our hypocrisy? All it takes is to admit it. (laughs) God, I'm spiritually bankrupt. 
God, I have no spirituality that I can stand on, but Jesus lived and died and rose for me. Forgive me, Lord. And our God is so good, he will. And not only will he forgive you and justify you and cleanse you and gather you like that hen who has brought together those who are his, he actually then will transform you. And then the woes go back to the blesseds. And then they will read like this. Blessed are you when your life leads others to opening the door to the kingdom. Blessed are you when your life has actual integrity and doesn't need to hide between technicalities. Blessed are you when your life is transforming from the inside out and the cup is being cleaned. Blessed are you that even if you're not on the right side of history, the Lord of history is on your side. This passage reminds us that if we will open our eyes to our own blindness by grace, there is one who will receive us because he descended lower than us and he rose higher. So look to the Lord and acknowledge your need. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, because this passage cuts to many things that are still a struggle for me as a sinner. Lord, I know there are times that I want to be seen on the outside a certain way, and that may not honestly reflect who I am internally. Furthermore, Lord, I know there are things that I preach that I don't practice as I ought And so when I hear Jesus talking about these woes, I have to admit that some of this surely refers to me. And so, Lord, I'm amazed and I'm stupefied and I'm so grateful that Jesus was willing to climb the cross of Calvary to save a blind hypocrite like me. And so rather than perish in our sin, Jesus says there is a way to escape hell. And it's to look to the one who bore it and then rose victoriously over it. So Lord, this morning, help us to comprehend the breadth and height and width and depth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That he has loved people who are blind to our own blindness. And yet he gives sight. And with that sight, Lord, we know we will never perfectly be what we ought to be. But we can say, I'm not what I was because now I am Christ. And I've been crucified with him. And I live now by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So then allow us the joy of being changed truly from the inside out. And allow us the joy, Lord, of experiencing integrity. And allow us the joy of leading other people to God not because we are great people, because we're just one beggar showing another where we found the bread of life. So to him alone be all glory. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H 
Bye-bye.